Praise the Lord. We'll invite you to turn to two openings of Scripture in your, uh, in your Bibles if you want to follow along with us. First Thessalonians chapter 5. And uh, why don't you go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 4 too. We'll go there immediately after we uh, refer to our text Scripture. We're teaching a series on the human spirit. Uh, there's a number of things that we've talked about relative to uh, spirit, soul, and body up to this point. And we want to go a little bit further this evening and see where the Holy Ghost would have us to go. We're using as a text scripture 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, which says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly or entirely or completely, other translations say. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's talking about the entirety of man. Man is spirit, soul, and body. He's a three-part being. We uh, have uh, coined the phrase or saying it like this because of uh, other scriptures that uh, uh, speak to this subject. That is, man is a spirit. He's created in the image of God, and God is a spirit. So if man's created in his image, he is of necessity a spirit being as well. Man is a spirit. He has a soul, which is made up of the mind, the will, and the emotions, and he lives in a body. Now, if you'll look with me over to Hebrews chapter 4, we'll look at verse 12. Notice it says... um, the Word of God is quick and powerful. Another translation says, full of life and power. Weymouth's translation says, full of life and power. For the Word of God is full of life and power and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder. In other words, it's so sharp it'll even do this. That's what this means. It's so sharp, it's so fine that it'll even do this, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now, when you start talking about spirit, soul, and body, there's a couple of scriptures that we'll take uh, for granted that, uh, that you know. For example, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, so that, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Other translations translate that differently. Uh, one says he's a new self. Uh, others say he's a new creation. Uh, others say he's a new species of being. One translation says he's a new species of being. But the last part of verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Well, man is spirit, soul, and body. So what old things is he talking about? What happens when we're born again? Do you get a new body? (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? I don't know about you, but if that was the case, I'd try to get born again, again, and again, and again, and again, and again. No, you don't get a new body. Well, what about a new mind? What about a new soul? The mind, the will, and the emotions. Does that change when you get born again? No. Well, what changes? The Old Testament prophets told us that the new birth experience would be where God would take out the old heart or the old spirit from you, put a new spirit within you, and then place his spirit within that. Jesus said it this way. He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He said that to Nicodemus when he was explaining what being born again was all about. So he said, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So when you're born again, it's your spirit that's born again. It's your spirit that's born again, not your soul and not your, not your body. Now, with that in mind, here we're in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says the word of God is quick and powerful, full of life and power. And that's what makes it so sharp. It's not sharp like a natural sword would be. It's sharp because it's full of life and power. It's a supernatural entity. The word of God is a living thing. It's supernatural. And because it's supernatural, because it's alive, it's able to divide even asunder between soul and spirit. Now, if you think about it, most people don't have trouble between distinguishing between the body and the, and the soul. 
That's pretty easily understood. We understand that the soul is the mind, the will, and the emotions. Most people can tell the difference between their mind, their will, and their emotions and their body. Most people can tell the difference between their mind, their will, and their emotions. And uh, or I'm sorry, most people can tell the difference between their body and their spirit. They may not know what the spirit is, but they can sure distinguish that from the body. That's not where, where we really have a problem when it comes to understanding or discerning the things of God. Where we have a problem is discerning the difference between soul and spirit. And the Bible is telling us that it, the Word of God, is the only thing that can distinguish or divide asunder. The word divide asunder here, or the phrase divide asunder, literally means to separate or distinguish between. And the only thing that can distinguish between soul and spirit is the Word of God. Now, there's a lot of ways we could look at that. For example, we'll take it for granted that you know a couple other scriptures. Romans chapter 4, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Every child of God, every person that's been born again has a right to be led of the Spirit of God through life. Well, how's he going to do that? Verse 16 of Romans chapter 8 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits, not with our soul, not with our body, but the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Now, if the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit on the most important thing there is to know, and that is that you've been born again, that you're in the family of God, how do you think he's going to lead you or communicate with you in other affairs of life? The inward witness, bearing witness with your spirit, not your soul, not your mind, not your will, not your emotions, and not with your body, but it's the spirit of God bearing witness with your spirit, the spirit of man, the real part of you. That's how he's going to lead you first and foremost through, the, through any of the affairs of life, any and all of the affairs of life. With that in mind, we see, therefore, the importance of distinguishing between soul and spirit so that we can be effectively led of the Holy Spirit. Because the question that everybody has is, well, Pastor Mike, how do I know if this is God or if this is just me? What does that mean? That means I haven't been able to distinguish between soul and spirit. Now, your spirit is the real you, but most people don't think of themselves as spirit beings. Most people think of themselves as their soul. They think of their mind, their will, and their emotions as being the real part of them, and it's not. You, the real you, is a spirit being. You have a soul, mind, will, and emotions, and you live in a body. But the real part of you is a spirit. The real part of you is where the Holy Ghost is trying to communicate. Now, with that in mind... If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things spiritually have become new. Think about what that means. To divide between soul and spirit is to be able to distinguish between who you are as an individual, who you are as a child of God. And if you are not able to distinguish between soul and spirit, you come up with all kinds of goofy things like, like we see in the body of Christ today. For example, we've seen, how many of us have seen these Christian TV shows, these interview sessions where people talk about, well, I just had to go out and, and, and discover who I am. Well, no Christian should need to ask the question who they are. Because if they're able to distinguish between soul and spirit, and the Word of God is the only thing that can do that, they know who they are. They're a new creation in Christ Jesus. I remember when I was in Bible school, I was uh, over at Brother Hagin's house, and, and uh, he was flipping channels. There was a ball game on, and it uh, it had just ended, so he was flipping through, and he came upon um, uh, one of the Christian TV shows. And there was this lady, well-known lady. She had been a minister's wife for a number of years. Well-known. She she was on there and being interviewed, and she said, well, uh, the, the host said, uh, so what's going on in your life? We've heard some things about it, and that's why we wanted to have you on. We wanted you to tell us the real story. She said, well, she said, I had to leave my husband. 
oh, what happened? I mean, that would, that would be considered a tragedy. He had a big church. She said, well, I just had to go. I'd, I'd been a pastor's wife for so many years, and I had to just go discover who I am. Had to go find myself. Brother Hagin spoke up. I'm sitting across the room. Brother Hagin spoke up and said, I can tell you who you are. You're an idiot. And then he caught himself and he said, he laughed a little bit and he said, well, what I meant by that is you should know that you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now, a Christian should need to ask, who am I? Because if they're able to distinguish from the word of God between soul and spirit, they don't have these questions about my life and my life's purpose and all this, who am I and what am I here for and all this other kind of stuff. Because the word of God will make that real to you. You find the people that are asking those questions are the people that never spend any time in the word. Now, since old things have passed away spiritually and all things become new, that'll answer some other questions for us. For example, you have a lot of people that ask questions like, can a Christian have a demon? Well, if you mean can a Christian have a demon in their spirit, absolutely not. Because old things have passed away and all things have become new. Yeah, but what if somebody was demon-possessed when they got saved? Well, what will you think? All things becoming new would mean everything except a couple of demons left in place? How stupid can we get? But see, the reason people are confused about this is because they don't distinguish between spirit and soul. The fact is your soul is not made new by the new birth. Eternal life has absolutely no impact on your soul unless you let it. It has absolutely no effect or impact upon your body unless you determine it to be so. And the Word of God is the only thing that can make that distinction. Now turn with me over to James chapter 1. Let's see something that James was talking about here. Now, folks, you need to understand something, and that is the understanding that we have and that many of us take for granted about understanding that we are spirit beings and we have a soul and we live in a body, that is so new in the body of Christ. It is absolutely, well, it's not even 50 years old. That understanding is not even 50 years old. And when that teaching first came out, it was so controversial and it was so um, maligned by those who refused to accept the word or had never heard it, and it took a while for it to sink in with some people, took a while for them to see it. We don't get everything the first time that we see it. And as a result, there's very few in the body of Christ, relatively speaking, as a percentage-wise, I guess, there are very few people that understand the difference between spirit and soul. So you start talking to somebody about these things, and you're going to be an oddity. People don't understand that. Or sometimes they'll use spirit and soul interchangeably. When you're talking about one thing, they'll be talking about something else. Notice what James said, writing to the church. Let's start reading in, um, let's start reading in verse 18. He said, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. In other words, begat means to be born again. In other words, he's saying here, we were born again by the will of God by or through accepting the word of God, the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, there's a, there's a couple of different things he could mean by first fruits. I personally think he's talking to the first generation church. I think he's speaking specifically to them. These are people that have been um, uh, born again within 50 years of the time that Jesus was uh, crucified. I think what he's saying is we're the first of many, many generations that will be called children of God. We're the first fruits. We're the first ones that came in because we lived in this time. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, so he's got to be talking about Christians. He's talking about people that were born again by the will of God, and now he's calling them beloved brethren. He's got to be talking to Christians, right? 
Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Most people practice that in reverse. They're slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to wrath. Wherefore, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wait a minute, I thought they were already made righteous. If they're born again, if they're saved, if they were saved by the will of God because they accepted the word of truth, or in other words, accepted the the word that they heard about Jesus, aren't they already made righteous? Well, sure they are. But there's a big difference in being made righteous and living righteously. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, to this end, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Now stop the presses. He just told these Christians that their souls weren't saved. Now sometimes in the church world, in church circles, they'll use the word soul improperly. For example, we could talk about a meeting that we had last week where eight people, eight souls were saved. Well, actually, that wasn't true. Eight people may have been born again, but their souls weren't affected. The Bible's real clear on that. James is telling us that by the Holy Ghost. He's saying that there's only one thing that's going to make the difference in these people who are already saved, already born again, in order for their souls to be saved, and that is to receive the Word of God. Now, isn't it the Word of God that got them saved? Yeah. The same word of God now is the, is the tool, the ingredient, the, the critical element in order to make a change in their souls. Now, here's another thought. This word save is the word sozo, and it's translated a number of different things throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament. One of the ways that it's translated is to heal. It means five things. It means to rescue, to deliver, to make safe, to make sound, and to make whole. Or, in other words, to heal. To make whole is to make is to heal. So he could be talking about the healing of the soul. Now, here's another thing that you hear in church circles every now and then, and that is inner healing. Christians need to, to, to receive inner healing. Well, what in the world do they mean by that? If they mean something spiritual, if they mean a, a change to the spirit, that's impossible because your spirit was made new. A spirit that's made new doesn't need to be healed. And God doesn't heal your spirit. He replaces your spirit. He replaces the old man with a new spirit. So inner healing, as far if we're going to be biblical, inner healing cannot mean spiritual change or or affectation. But right here, James is saying that there is a healing that can take place in the mind, the will, and the emotions. And, you know, that's where we have our problems. People have problems with memories. Want to be healed of memories. Well, there's only one way to do that, and that's to get your soul saved. Only one possibility for that, and that's to get your soul saved. Well, how do you do that? By receiving with meekness. That means to be teachable. Don't rely on what you think, but rely on the truth of the word. Receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, let's keep reading. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So it's something more than just hearing the the truth of the word. It's acting on it in your life. 
For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in the glass. The glass he's talking about is a mirror. It's like looking at yourself in a mirror. For he looks at himself in, in the mirror and then goes his way. Once he leaves the mirror, he forgets what manner of man he was. In other words, he forgets what he's supposed to look like. The word is the mirror that shows you who you are in Christ. The word that's able to save your souls is the mirror that we're to look at and say, that's who I am. But once we take our eyes off the Word and get away from the Word, many people that are hearers and not doers of the Word forget what they're supposed to look like. They forget who they really are as reflected by the Word of God. And so then they go back to being like everybody else is in the world. They go back to being like they were before they got saved. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, he's still talking about the Word of God. Whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, notice the difference, One guy looks and then looks away. The other guy never stops looking. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Please notice that you will be blessed to the degree that you are a doer of the word. That's why James said in verse 22, Be doers and not hearers only. Because if you're just a hearer, you're deceiving yourself. we got a lot of self-deceived people in the church. Now turn with me back to uh, Romans chapter 12. Let's see what Paul said about this as he was inspired of the Holy Ghost. Romans chapter 12, we know that he's writing this to the church. He's writing this to Christians. He's talking to them about their churches. He's talking about their uh, their lifestyle. He's talking about the law and Gentiles being brought into the family of God and following the faith of Abraham and so on and so forth. Notice what he said to them. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. Notice he did not say you present yourself. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Most translations, if you get uh, if you get one of those 26 translations of the Bible, most translations translate this spiritual worship or spiritual service instead of reasonable service. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship or spiritual service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, notice what he's saying. He's saying that these people that have been born again, these people that have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, that righteousness, that new birth experience has not affected their bodies or their minds. If it's going to affect their bodies or their minds, it's going to be because of something they choose to do, not something that God does for them. Now, let me ask you a question. Why didn't he say present yourself? Why didn't he say, I encourage you folks to present yourselves to God? That would make a nice sermon. That would fit it right into what a lot of people talk about and the way that a lot of people speak. You know, I never have understood why, why the way that the Holy Ghost says things isn't good enough for some folks. I never have understood that. Why do we have to come up with our own phrases and our own buzzwords? Was God not smart enough to come up with the way to say it? But you look at the body of Christ. For example, you'll, talk, you'll, you'll see a lot of people that say that the whole purpose of the Christian life is to die out to self. You can't find that in the Scripture. 
The purpose of the Christian life, as Paul is telling us here, just like James did, is to let that new self, that recreated human spirit, recreated by the blood of Jesus, making Jesus the Lord of your life, to allow that recreated self, that new self, to dominate your flesh and your mind. Now, what they mean is to crucify the flesh. Now, that's scriptural. So why don't we say it the way the Holy Ghost says it? I never have got that. I never have understood that. Why don't we say things the way the Bible says them and then there's no confusion? If we do that where it comes to spirit, soul, and body, there would be no confusion in the church either. But Paul didn't say present yourselves unto God. Why is that? Because you can't give God something that's already his. Bible says your spirit's been purchased of God. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, the Bible says that that God purchased your body too. It does say that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. It says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Well, let me read it to you rather than just quote it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you and which you have of God and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. Now did Paul not know that when he wrote this to the Romans? No. Here's what we need to understand. And again, this comes down to discerning or dividing between, separating between spirit and soul and body. Here's what it means. You can't give me, this is my Bible. You can't give me my Bible because it's mine. But if I loan you my Bible, you can present it back to me. Your body is on loan. It's purchased of God just as much as your spirit is. But your spirit isn't on loan. It belongs to God and God's indwelling it. So he doesn't put that in your charge. He's there and that's his home. Your body, however is the temple of the Holy Ghost only because it's the temple of your own spirit, and that's where the Holy Ghost dwells. Your body's up to you. Now, if that were not the case, Paul would have said, now, you folks don't worry about your bodies because God lives there. But you're still going to have to do something with your mind. But he didn't. He said, present your bodies. Why? Because it's on loan from God. Now, what do you think God wants you to do with the body he's loaned you while you're here on the earth? So he wants you to use that body that he's loaned you just to live the way the world lives? A lot of Christians must think so. Because you can't tell the difference in them and the world in a lot of ways. What's he saying? He's saying you better be thinking about what you're doing with your body so that you can present it back to God in the manner that he wanted you to use it. You know, so much of our worship in the, in the body of Christ is soulish. We call it spiritual worship, but it's not. It's soulish. Because, for example, uh, songs. We'll just uh, use that for an example. Many of the songs we sing, most of the songs that are sung in churches aren't about who God is, aren't about the greatness of God, aren't about the, the goodness of God or even the sacrifice of Jesus. It's about how we feel about all those things. In other words, it strikes an emotional chord rather than a spiritual chord. But because people don't base, a lot of the Christian songwriters don't base their songs on what the Bible says, but more of the Christian lingo that's used, there's no dividing between soul and spirit. 
That's why a lot of songs that we get, we've got to change the words. There may be a popular song, maybe something everybody thinks is a pretty tune, but we've got to change the words if we're going to sing it. So much of what's done in the body of Christ that's thought to be spiritual is really soulish. Because anything that affects your emotions instead of what the word says about who you are and what belongs to you is an element of the soul. Well, what did Paul say to do about the soul? Verse 2, he said, be not conformed to the world. In other words, don't operate the way the world does. Don't think the way the world thinks. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. There's only one thing that will transform you. To know the perfect will of God. And that is to renew your mind. The transformation process takes place in the mind, not in the spirit. You know why it doesn't take place in the spirit? Because your spirit's already made new. The Bible says you as a spirit being have been made perfect in the sight of God when old things passed away. You're not going to ever be more righteous than you were when you were born again. You can't grow in righteousness. Your spirit was made righteous. Now you can learn to live according to righteousness in this life by renewing your mind. Let me... uh, well, let me, let me tell you something that I did. Uh, when I was working with Brother Hagen, there was about a, a three, little over a three-year period where um, uh, the Lord really impressed upon me. Uh, well, I don't know if that's the right way to say it. I determined. I, I think it was led of the Holy Ghost to do it, but it wasn't so much him telling me or, or it's just something that seemed like what I ought to do. I, I don't know how to explain it any better than that. But anyway, I saw in, in the book of Proverbs, I had uh, been on a, uh, a Bible reading schedule that would read you through the Bible once, uh, um, well, I was reading 10, 10 chapters of the Old Testament uh, every day. I was reading uh, uh, five Psalms every day. I was reading one chapter in Proverbs every day, and I was reading three chapters in the New Testament every day. That'll get you through the Old Testament once in a year. It'll get you through Psalms and Proverbs once a month, and it'll get you through the New Testament three times a year. And so I was doing that. I had done that for several years. One of the best things I ever did, it, it acquainted me with the Bible. And uh, and it was just a tremendous thing. But reading that much, you're not meditating. At least I wasn't. I didn't have the time to meditate a lot on the things that I was reading. I was reading it just for, for foundation and information's sake. But there was, uh, I would spend enough time in Proverbs to see how much the Bible talked about wisdom. And it's, the Bible says a lot about wisdom. And so I made wisdom my goal. The Bible says wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, with all you're getting, get, get wisdom. Bible says wisdom is, uh, uh, has length of days in her right hand, riches and honor in her left hand. Bible says wisdom is, uh, um, um, dwells with the, the knowledge of witty inventions. Says a lot of good things about wisdom, a lot of important things about wisdom. So I went for, for finding out everything that I could about wisdom. And I found out that in many, many cases, not everyone, but in many, many cases, the Bible talks about wisdom and understanding. Well, if, if you look up the words wisdom and understanding from the Hebrew, you'll find out they mean virtually the same thing. Very little difference between wisdom and understanding. So I had a time trying to figure out what's the difference in wisdom and understanding. And I don't know why, but, but somehow that was important to me. I, I finally hit on the idea that, well, or, or at least had the thought, well, maybe they're just the same thing and the Bible uses two different words to describe it. But somehow or another, that didn't sit right with me on the inside and it, it just didn't, just didn't seem to fit. 
I just, I just couldn't get it. And it bugged me and it, it was, it, it, it aggravated me. It frustrated me because I'd study it. I'd, I'd pull out the concordances. There weren't computers and iPads and stuff like that back then. And, and so I'd do everything I could. I'd stack books all over the, the room and try to study and try to figure it out. And after a couple of hours, I was back at the same place that I was when I started. He seemed to be making no progress whatsoever. And one day the Holy Ghost opened my eyes to a verse of scripture that I had read a hundred times at least, maybe more, even just in the Bible reading program. And that was Proverbs chapter 14, verse 33. Maybe you want to turn there. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 33. And this understanding opened everything else up to me to help me understand about spiritual growth and about what God was looking for from us, or from me at least. I think he wants the same for all of us according to the Scripture. Proverbs 14.33 says this. It says, Wisdom rests in the heart of him that has understanding. And like, a, like an open door, I saw it. Immediately I saw it. And I don't know why I hadn't seen it the other times I read it. I was reading through it once a month. I've seen this at least once every month on the 14th day of the month. But when I finally saw that, when my eyes were finally opened to that, that caused everything to fall in place to me. Because what it's saying is wisdom is a matter of the spirit. Wisdom is of the heart. Understanding is of the mind. So it's, the Bible is making a distinction, even though it talks about them in, in, in almost interchangeable terms. It's making a distinction, even in the Old Testament, between the spirit and the soul. Now, what that means is the only way I'm going to get understanding or the only way I'm going to get wisdom and make wisdom a part of my spirit the real me. And wisdom is the ability to see the heart of the matter, see what's really going on. If I'm going to have wisdom, that means I'm going to have to do something with my mind. And that caused me to understand a lot of things about the Scripture. Because everything about wisdom, the Bible says, for example, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Having respect unto God would be having respect unto His Word. You can't respect God and not respect His Word which is where a lot of the church world is. A lot of the church world is saying, well, I just love God, and, I, you know, he's just the first and foremost thing in my life. He's so important. Nothing's more important than him, but they won't spend 10 minutes a day in the Word. That's impossible because God and his Word are one. If you care about God, you're going to care about the Word. Everything else is just lip service. That may sound harsh, but that's the truth. So I realized... That if I'm going to develop in wisdom, I'm going to have to renew my mind to the word. I'm going to have to gain understanding. In other words, the mind, the soul, is the entrance to the spirit. Now, let's examine that and see if it's true. You remember in Mark chapter 4 when Jesus tells us about the four different kinds of people? He uses the parable of the sower sowing the word. Remember the story? Four different types of ground. Some are the wayside, some are stony ground, some are thorns. Uh, some of the seed was sown among thorns and others good ground. You remember that? What was the whole purpose of the work of the devil? Well, in the, the seed that fell by the wayside, he came immediately and took the word away, stole the word away that was in their hearts. How does the devil steal anything away from your heart? There's only one way that the devil can operate, and that's through your mind. The devil does not have access to your spirit, but he does have access to your mind. And he gains access or influence upon your spirit by planting wrong thoughts in your mind. So in other words, he can influence your spirit only through your soul. 
to stony ground. When they heard the word, they received it with gladness. And the word began to spring up, but because they had no moisture, in other words, because they didn't continue in the word. Remember what James said? Be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Because the hearer just sees the word of God. They see a little bit of it, but then go their way and forget who they're supposed to be. They forget what the word says they are or who or what belongs to them. Because they have no root, they have no moisture in themselves, literally. It says they're offended for the word's sake. Afflictions and persecution arise for the word's sake and they're offended. Well, isn't that a matter of the will? Don't you choose when you're offended? And what offends us? Do people get spiritually offended? No. They get offended when they allow their emotions to make the decisions. You look at every person in the church from the time that we've started, and it'd be a long list of the people that I've offended. Every one of them. Not a one of them were offended by the word itself. They were offended because I didn't give them the emotional support that they thought they needed or thought I should give them or whatever. And I'm not real good at that. People get offended through their souls, not their spirits. And so what is the devil doing? The devil is creating circumstances, affliction and persecution for the word's sake. In other words, for the purpose of planning the thoughts of poor me or wrong thoughts in some other manner, in some other fashion, so that they choose, willingly give up on the word of God. So again, the devil is influencing your spiritual well-being through your soul. What about the thorny ground? It says they began to produce fruit. They, the, it comes up, but there's also the weeds and the thorns and all that other kind of stuff that come in, the cares of this world, the lust of other things, and the deceitfulness of riches entering in choke the word of God. Now, what does that mean? That means the devil uses distractions in the world to turn your attention from the Word of God and what the Bible says we are, who the Bible says we are and what the Bible says belongs to us and turns our attention to other things instead. Well, that's a choice, isn't it? Isn't that a matter of the will? Certainly it is. So here the devil is is affecting the outcome and the blessings, spiritual blessings that Jesus has already purchased for you through your soul. But the good ground... Here's the word, keeps it. In other words, doesn't get distracted, doesn't get offended. The devil does the same thing against the good ground people as he does everybody else. But they choose to to look away from the offense. They choose to look away from the distractions and keep their eyes on the word of God and produce good fruit, some 30, some 60, and some 100 fold. Now, what made the difference in them producing fruit? What made the difference in them being good ground and producing fruit, even though they're enduring the same afflictions, the same wrong thoughts, the same distractions, the same work of the devil in their lives that the other people did that turned them away? What makes the difference? Their willingness to focus on the Word of God and keep it first place. Therefore, if the weakness of the first three types of ground was because the devil was influencing their spiritual outcome through their soul, we could say that the reverse side of that is that the strength, the spiritual strength that produces good fruit is because they were strong in their souls. They thought in line with what the Word says instead of the distractions and the wrong thoughts of the enemy and the offenses. 
I don't know if you know this or not, but your spiritual development depends entirely on the degree to which you renew your mind to the Word. Entirely. Entirely. Now, we're about out of time, but turn with me to, uh, let me introduce this. First uh, Corinthians. Well, wait a minute. Do I want to go there? Um, no, I don't, want to, I don't want to get that started. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. I don't really have time to introduce it. And once if I did introduce it, I wouldn't like for I had to leave it. So let me go another direction instead to close this up. Matthew chapter 4 tells us about when Jesus was uh, tempted of the devil in the wilderness. Let's start reading in verse 1. Then was Jesus led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Notice how the devil attacks you. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are. So if we understand how they attempt, how he tempted Jesus, we can understand how temptation is going to come to us. Notice the first thing he did is he questioned who he was. He wanted Jesus. His purpose was to question Jesus or make Jesus question himself. Now, I'm sure the devil's never tried that with you. Just as soon as you stand up and say, make a confession, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, he wants to challenge you about who do you really think you are. As soon as you make a confession about I was healed by the stripes of Jesus, he wants to challenge you on whether or not you really believe that. Every time you make a step toward God, he will challenge you in this very same way, and that is, if that's who you are, then why don't you do this? In other words, prove it. The devil's always trying to make you prove something. You never have to prove anything to the devil. He said to Jesus, if you're the son of God, command these stones that they may be made bread. Now, I fully believe Jesus could have done it if he needed to. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been a real temptation. If Jesus didn't have the power to turn those stones into bread, then he could have said, oh, you idiot. I can't do that. But it was a real temptation. And notice how Jesus responded. Jesus answered in verse 4. And said, it is written. In other words, the way to handle temptation, the way to handle wrong thoughts is to quote the word. Now, folks, I don't know if you know this or not, but in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, where it says, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word renewing means to reverse by repetition. The way you renew your mind is you reverse your thinking from the world's way of thinking or the way you used to think, or the way you've normally thought, by repeating what the Word of God says again and again and again and again and again. You have to train your mind to think a new way. They've even proven scientifically that the brain is grooved according to thought patterns that you normally have. So you've got to create new grooves. You've got to create Word of God grooves in your, in your brain. Reversal by repetition. So what does Jesus do? Jesus quotes or repeats what the Word of God says. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And what's he saying? He's saying the same thing that bread is to the physical body, the Word of God is to the spirit of man. 
So we could say that the Word of God is spirit food. And it's the only thing that is designed to feed and to fit your spirit. The Word of God is spirit food. Now, we also know that, that uh, there are certain forces of, of the spirit. For example, faith is a spiritual force. And the Bible says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. So we can say that the Word of God, because it's spirit food and faith is a spiritual force, the Word of God is faith food. But love is a spiritual force too. Love is of the heart. So we could say that the Word of God is love food. Joy is a spiritual force. We could say the Word of God is joy food. We could go down through the whole list of the fruit of the Spirit and say that the Word of God is faithfulness food. It's meekness food. It's temperance food. Why? Because the Word of God is the only thing that feeds and develops your spirit. But notice how that works. Jesus is not going to exercise a spiritual force except or unless his mind is renewed to the Word. He had to know what the answer was before the devil came tempting. Now, what if we find ourselves in a situation where something arises, a circumstance comes up, and we don't know what the Word says? What are we going to do? What are we to do? Folks, here's a great lesson you need to learn. I'd hear Brother Hagin talk about renewing his mind and talking about how many years he'd been in the ministry and how many years he'd saved before that and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, dear Lord, I'll never get there. I barely know where John 3.16 is. And here Brother Hagin's talking about being in the ministry for 50-something years and all this kind of stuff, renewing his mind, teaching these things. Jesus appeared to him back in 1950, five years before I was born. I'll never catch up. And I learned something. The renewed mind is not the mind that knows everything that the Bible says. The renewed mind is the mind that thinks first and foremost, no matter what happens, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the situation is, the first thought for the renewed mind is, what does the Word say? You may have to stop and go find out. That's okay. The renewed mind first and foremost says, what does the Word say? Because whatever it says, that's what I'm going with. So you may have to learn it little bit by little bit. And some of those little bits may be in the middle of a hard place. But the renewed mind says, what does the word say? First and foremost, that's its first thought. That's its, is, is its instinctive reaction. What does the word say about this? Because remember, the doer of the word is blessed in his deed. You can't do it if you don't know it. But even if you have to go find out and then do it, it counts. So Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, what man is he talking about? He's not talking about the outer man. He's not talking about the, the, the uh, um, well, he's talking about the outward man needing bread. But the man that he's talking about lives by the, the Spirit of God or the Word of God. That's the man on the inside. That's the man that's to be born again. He's talking about the recreated human spirit. The spirit man lives by the Word of God just like the outward man, the body, lives by bread or food. Turn with me over to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, Jesus is talking to his disciples. It's kind of a tough time, tough place. Jesus winds up telling them that unless they eat his flesh and drink his blood, he doesn't have any part in him. That's the only way to eternal life. Of course, he's talking about his sacrifice on the cross. They're thinking about the law of Moses where man was commanded not to eat the blood of anything, much less humans. 
So it says, as a result of this, in verse 60, John chapter 6, verse 60, it says, many, therefore, of his disciples. Please notice his disciples. It's not just the Jews that walked away from him. Many, therefore, of his disciples. Most Bible scholars agree and, and um, uh, acknowledge that Jesus had a crowd of about 100 to maybe 110 people that followed him around everywhere he went. We know, for example, that when he picked the 70, he didn't have to go looking for anybody. They were already there. So they must have been part of that group that followed Jesus around regularly. That must be the disciples that he's talking about here. It says, many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Now, I want you to notice something. They've got an opportunity to be offended or they've got an opportunity to look past their emotions and how they feel about this relative to the law of Moses and maybe just say, you know, I don't understand this. Maybe we could ask Jesus about this later. But that's not what they did. You know, it's an interesting thing. Jesus didn't try to keep from offending people. We've got the idea that Jesus gave warm, warm, fuzzy feelings to everybody that he came in contact with. Well, I don't think the Pharisees felt so warm and fuzzy when he said that they were of their father, the devil. The rich young ruler, when he came to Jesus, the Bible says Jesus loved the guy, but he didn't try to keep him from walking away. He told him, you lack one thing. It's pretty good if you only lack one thing. Sell what you have and give to the poor so you have treasure in heaven. The one thing he lacked was treasure in heaven. Said the rich young ruler was grieved at this saying, for he had great possessions. I would submit to you that the possessions had him. And he went away. Did Jesus try to stop him? Jesus said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We can work this out. When you read the Bible about how Jesus operated and really think it through, it's a lot different than what a lot of people think about him. Many of his disciples, therefore, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew it himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, does this offend you? Again, he's not saying, hey, wait a minute, let's talk this out. He said, does this offend you? He didn't back up one inch on the truth that he spoke. Does this offend you? What and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up to where he was before? In other words, he says, let's fast forward a little bit and think about me ascending into heaven. Would that cause you to listen to what I'm saying? He doesn't even try to describe it or explain it to him, folks. He just says, what if you see something so supernatural out of me that there's no way to explain it other than God's on my side? You still going to be offended? Folks, I want you to understand something. God's always on the side of the word because God and the word are one. Don't ever, ever, ever allow yourself to be offended at the word. Even if it's something you don't understand, even if it's something that's misspoken, don't allow yourself to get offended and turn away from the word. Don't allow my personality or lack thereof allow you to be offended. Don't turn away from the word. Jesus said, what? And if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up to where he was before, will that be a good enough reason for you to listen? To avoid this offense? Notice he said in verse 63, he said, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit 
and they are life. The Word of God is the only thing that can feed your spirit. It's the only thing that can feed your spirit. It's the only thing that's designed to fit or to develop your spirit. There's nothing more important than the Word, folks. There's nothing that will ever be more important than the Word. Ever. Under any circumstances. It's the Word that counts. And it's it's only the Word that counts. So it comes down to this. It comes down to your spiritual development depends on your renewing your mind to the Word. In other words, your spiritual development depends on the degree to which you influence your soul with the Word of God. Because your soul is the gateway to your spirit. You can either fill it with all the stuff that's going on in the world. You can fill it with gossip. You can fill it with anything and everything that's on TV. Or you can fill it with the Word. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. They are spirit and they are life. So you got Paul saying, present your body a living sacrifice and renew your mind to the word. You got James saying that the word of God, receiving the word of God is the only thing that will save your soul. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to our text scripture in First Thessalonians 5.23. Wherefore, I pray God that your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How is your body and your soul, uh, I'm, yeah, how is your body and your soul going to be preserved blameless? Your spirit's going to be preserved in and of itself. The blood of Jesus does that. But what's going to preserve your body and your spirit until Jesus comes? The renewing of your mind and the presenting of your body is a living sacrifice. God's not the one that does it. It's us that's supposed to do it for him to receive us when he returns. Can you see it? The next time I wanted to get into it tonight, but I didn't didn't. Uh, I just talked too long on other things, I guess. Next time, I want to show you how the spirit of God searches things to lead us. How he searches. The Bible says, for example, in Proverbs 20, verse 27, it says the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. Searching all the inward parts of the belly. I want to show you how the Holy Ghost searches things out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to renew our minds to the truth. Father, we commit ourselves to you. That we will develop a frame of mind so that the first thing that we think Our instinctive thought in every circumstance and in every situation is what does the word say? It's our desire, Father, to be doers of the word, and therefore we commit ourselves to be so. We thank you, Father, for bringing your word to pass on our behalf. We thank you that we will be blessed to the degree that we do and live and practice your word. We thank you, Father, for causing us to grow and develop in spirit as we do the word of God. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.